Hi there, welcome in to Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 69 from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. Rich Kimball here, along with Carrie Haskell. Our daily show, Downtown, originates from here. Weekdays from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Zone Radio. Streaming audio at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. The podcast is brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, a fun edition of the podcast this week as we talk with a Hollywood legend and talk about another Hollywood legend. Actually, Carrie Haskell, several legends will come up in our conversations today. Yes, not to name drop, but uh, when you've got somebody that's talking about Cher, Biver Streisand, <laughs> Orson Welles. You have John Ford, and on and on and on. Yeah, this week we talk with director, actor, film historian, Peter Bogdanovich. And we talk with writer Josh Karp, who wrote the book Orson Welles' final movie, produced the documentary about the making and the effort to finish up The Other Side of the Wind, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Well, let's get things underway by, I, I don't think it's a stretch to call him a Hollywood legend uh, as a director. Some terrific movies through the years. Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc, Paper Moon, St. Jack. A lot of hits, a few misses along the way, but some great stories about all of them, the making of those films. And his work as a film historian as well. Here's our conversation with Peter Bogdanovich. Hi, Rich. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for making time for us. My pleasure. Uh, I totally unexpected. Uh, the other night, I was, I was searching the dial and came upon the wonderful Buster Keaton documentary uh, on TCM. I thought that was terrific, and I, I was surprised to learn that you never got to meet Buster Keaton. No, I didn't. I was just I had discovered where he was living at that time. About, about five blocks from where I was living, and then he died before I could get to him. Well, it's a wonderful love letter to him. How how important is he in the history of film? Well, I think in terms of comedy, uh, he's he's right up there um, with the best. And as a silent filmmaker, he was he was extraordinary. And those films, a lot of those films, really hold up. Well, yeah, I, I actually followed it up by watching The General for about, I don't know, maybe the eighth or tenth time, and, and that just holds up so well and seems to get better with age. It does, yeah. yeah it was a very modern film. I like all, his, all the ones he, that he directed. Uh, they're, all, they're all good. The last, the ten films that we ended the documentary with. Um, I'm glad you saw it. I I, I I I didn't know they were running it. I, I happened to be watching the the TCM because they were running a Sherlock Junior or something, and and then they said they were running the the documentary. I didn't even know they were running it, but I stayed and watched it. You've been on television a lot lately. You were a key a part in that I thought terrific CNN series on the movies as well. Yeah, I think I was in the one of them. Um, this in the seventies, I think. Uh, the other a little, a little bit in the yeah, in the seventies. What were you saying? I wanted to talk about the other side of the wind because we've had uh, we've had a lot of people talk about that with us. Josh Carp, who who uh, did the documentary, they'll love me when I'm dead, was on with us. I, I thought the movie was sensational. Would Orson have been pleased to see that film finally completed? Oh yeah, he would have very much. <clears throat> I remember 
he turned to me once. Uh, we were at lunch or something. And out of the blue, he just turned to me. He said, if anything ever happens to me, I want you to promise me you'll finish the picture. And I said, oh, Orson, nothing's going to happen to you. He said, I know. But if it does, I want you to promise me you'll finish the picture. I said, oh, yeah, all right. Of course I will. And that's what happened. Well, and, it took 20 years or something to finish it. And it's remarkable because you watch that film, and, and here, here's a movie that had been worked on in various stages since the 1970s, and it's still ahead of its time. Yeah, exactly. It is still ahead of its time. And it was 40 years in the making, so to speak. I think your book, uh, with your conversations of this is Orson Welles, I yeah. feel like it's the definitive look at, at Orson. I know you had a falling out with him for a while, but you did reconcile before his death. Yes, we did, yes. I'm happy to say we did. We didn't really have a falling out. We just, it was a difficult situation um, with a movie that he, he, he had sort of wanted to make. It's a long story, but um, we did reconcile, and uh, we had a very nice conversation. I remember a couple of weeks before he died, I said to him, Jesus, Orson, I feel like I made so many mistakes. And he said, he rather, rather um, with a light tone, he said, well, it does seem to be impossible to go through life without making a great many of them. <laughs> it He's such a giant in film. I mean, everything he touched, theater, uh, radio as well. But is there a danger that his impact on cinema might be forgotten by new generations? I don't think so. I think he's pretty interesting to younger people because he, he was such a inspiration at, at a young age. I mean, made Citizen Kane at 25. Mm. Um, I, I don't know how he did that. And... Um, not only that, but his performance is so brilliant in that movie. We're talking with Peter Bogdanovich here on Downtown. What did you learn from your time working with Roger Corman? <laughs> How to steal shots. <laughs> he said, if you, can't, if you can't get it legally, steal it. <laughs> so we did. We did some stuff. I made a picture called Targets with him. It came out in 68. And... Uh, <laughs> We not you're not allowed to even go near the freeway. We shot on the free on the freeway and at the freeway. <laughs> um, I I learned I worked with Roger on another picture prior to that called The Wild Angels with Peter Fonz mm. and Nancy Sinatra. And I was kind of an uh, I got I was an uncredited writer. I wrote rewrote about eighty percent of the script for him. And I worked as his assistant, but also did the second unit, uh, which wasn't second unit because I was working with the leads with the Fonda and Sinatra. And, and Bruce Stern and so on. Uh, so he was. That picture uh, was his most successful film to date, to that date. And um, I mean, it cost nothing. It cost I think three hundred thousand, grossed about ten million. So it was a huge hit in its day. Um, so he offered me the opportunity to make my own film that I would direct, and he gave me a proposal which was, you know, impossible. I mean, he wanted me to shoot. Uh, for two, he said Boris Karloff owed him two days' work and <laughs> wanted me to shoot 20 minutes with Karloff in two days and then use 20 minutes of Karloff footage from a dreadful movie they made called The Terror <laughs> and then shoot with other actors for 10 days and shoot another 40 minutes. And 
said, well, I guess so. Um, it was a chance to make my own picture. Then we wrote a script, and um, he read it and said, this is the best script I've ever had to produce. But I don't know, I don't know how you can possibly shoot it. <laughs> Karloff, shoot, shoot Karloff stuff in two days. You're going to have to cut cut it cut it back. I said, if we cut it back, Roger, it won't be in the best script you ever read again. It was pretty tight. He said, well, go ahead and cut it. So I didn't cut it. Um, I just persisted and rewrote the ending a bit. He finally, we finally twisted his arm, and he came up with a total of five days. And I learned how to work. I work. I learned how to work quickly, um, and to not to cover myself with shots that I might need. Only shoot things that I know I will need. And uh, and I've done that pretty much throughout my career. I, I've only shot what I needed. You know. How was Karloff to work with? Oh, wonderful! Real pro. He was a terrific man, and a really, he was an established star, you know. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew who he was. And so we played variations on that in the, in the movie. I mean, it was, the, it was the first time I had basically constructed a movie for a star that was familiar to the public. And um, he, was, he was just wonderful to work with, a real, a real professional and... He was no kid. He was seventy nine at the time. He had wore he had uh, what do you call it braces on both his legs. He had a fairly bad case of emphysema, which made it difficult for him to walk and talk at the same time. But he never complained, and he did it all. He, he stayed. I think we the, the drive-in sequence. We spent a, a whole day and a night with him. He was up until five in the morning, and um, never complained. He was he was really. A, Hard act to follow. Looking at your films, Peter, you always seem to have great parts and great performances by women. Why do you feel you know women so well? I don't know if I do. I just I like women, and, and I, I think you know I've been offered a number of pictures that I turned down because there's no good women's parts. I, I, I want to make sure there's a good woman's part in, in anything I do. And I don't know. I, I just. I find women uh, intuitive, very intuitive, and and very smart uh, in ways that men aren't uh, as smart. And um, I don't know. I just I, I'm bored with the idea of doing an all male picture or something like that. I've turned down a couple of those, like the last detail and Boys in the Bank. I mean, what they called it uh, women. They call it oh, a Dog Day Afternoon. Oh yeah. yeah. And um, I remember somebody offered me the last detail, and I said, no, I don't do it. Why not? There's no women in it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> now, away from away from film, you've had quite a history with women as well. Is it is it possible that you love women, at least at a time in your life, you loved women too much to be with one? Well, no, I always wanted to be with one, and I was with, with Sybil for about eight or nine years. Polly was about, was about the same length. And um, Dorothy and I were going to get married, but mm. he was murdered before we could do it. 
that that story is so sad. And I, I saw an interview with you a while back, and and you talked about it. To this day, you you in a sense dealing with post traumatic stress disorder after the death, the murder of Dorothy Stratton. Yes, that's true. It, it, I, I noticed it. Yeah, it, it's quite severe. You know, what happens is you get very anxious um, about things, and you start wondering why somebody hasn't gotten home yet or something. You know. Um, it gets kind of just you can't help it. It's, it's, I guess you can't help it. It was traumatic experiences for sure. I want to talk about some of the people you've worked with in your film career. Uh, Jeff Bridges, uh, really his first big role in Last Picture Show. He earned an Oscar nomination for that. Now he was dating Sybil, and then you began dating Sybil. But how was that work relationship? <laughs> well, he. He was with Sybil for sort of for a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm on that picture, and um, then she left. I mean, he left to do his army uh, uh, reserve training order. And Sybil and I got interested in each other way too much. And anyway, occupational hazard takes over. You were able to get past that, though, and you worked obviously worked very well together. Oh yeah, we got along very well. She was terrific in pictures. You also had uh, great success teaming with Ryan O'Neill. Did other people in Hollywood fail to understand his strengths as an actor? Uh, yeah, I guess they did. Um, I, I directed him very carefully and very much, and um, you know, fed him a lot of things, particularly on What's Up Doc. A lot of the, you know, you could almost say he was doing me doing Harry Grant. Because I would show him how to do it, and he would, did it well. Paper Moon, I think, is his best performance that he ever gave in any picture. Uh, he really understood that guy and was a little bit like that guy in life. So um, he was pretty difficult on in the last picture we did, Nickelodeon. He. Um, Uh, one one of my, I'm going to say one of my favorite actors that that you worked with and, and had terrific success with him. Uh, and uh, I went back and rewatched Saint Jack recently, and you worked with Ben Gazzara on that, and they all laughed. But he is another guy I think underappreciated uh, when people look back at film and the movie itself. Saint Jack is just terrific. Thank you. I like that picture too. I think Benny. You're right. Benny was very underrated, and uh, should have, you know, he should have played the. I saw him on the Broadway stage, you know, uh, in, in uh, his first thing that he did, End as a Man by Calder Willington. He was extraordinary. He was a flat-out star on the stage. <clears throat> and he should have played the lead in um, Hatful of Rain, which he did on the stage brilliantly. He should have played the lead in Cat uh, instead of Paul. Mm. Newman's all right, but... Gazzara was, was extraordinary in that in that production. I saw that on Broadway. Um, he was a great actor and a real artist, rare in this business. We're talking with Peter Bogdanovich, another actor you worked with on They All Laughed. Uh, John Ritter, I knew you were also very, very good friends with him. A brilliant oh. comedic actor, but I always thought he, he was an actor who had a lot of depth that people always didn't tap into. Well, that's the problem, yeah. 
I I had a I had a chance to cast him in in the last picture show, and I always regretted that I didn't cast him. I, I should have, but I got talked out of it. And he, I would have wished he could have done that because then he would have had a dramatic role and started his career as opposed to comedy. And, and uh, I think he would have been able to play, been allowed or given the opportunity to play a lot more, many, a lot more different, diverse kind of parts. He's a very good dramatic actor besides me. Because I, I always say if you can play comedy, you can do anything. Which part did you uh, were you hoping to cast him in in Last Picture Show? The part Tim Bottoms played. Oh, wow. Uh, no, I, have I, diary, I have a diary where I said I'm going to cast John Ritter, and then I didn't. didn't I, I kicked myself for years. I understand, I mean, even though many the... Became, many became a very close friend of mine. I understand, even though the film did very well, and she was much acclaimed for it, you didn't have a great experience working with Cher. No, no, she was a pain in the neck. Um, she's very good in the picture, in that, but I had to really... Be very careful how I direct, how I direct, how I shot her, because in a in a in a she couldn't sustain a scene. In other words, if we if we had a scene that was four pages, and I wanted to shoot it in one shot, for example, as I've often done, she couldn't do that. She couldn't sustain the scene. She'd start off well, but then she'd go off somewhere off the track. So I just shot a lot of close-ups of her because in the close-ups she I can direct her in the close-up while she's doing it. And um, I can also get in close so I can see her eyes. She has very, she has, she has, and had a very good eyes in terms of sadness. She, she seemed to have the sadness of the world in her eyes. When you get to know her, you just, you find out it's just self pity, but, but <laughs> it translates very well in close ups. So I, I think, think more, more close ups of her in that picture. <laughs> than I ever did of anybody. So I think that that answers the question. A good director can make somebody look like a good actor, even if perhaps they're not that gifted. Oh, yeah, sure. There's a lot of tricks to that. Uh, you wrote Not a... just tricks, but also, you know, you say, uh, you show them how to do it. You, know? mm -hmm. you say, try this. And you've given actors line readings for, for a long, long time. Have any of them been bothered by that? Yeah, some of them have, some of them tell me they don't like it, so I don't do it um, unless I have to. Tim Bottoms was one of them. He didn't he didn't like line readings, and um, um, so I didn't do it. And I remember we had one speech that was just he couldn't get it right. I I just he couldn't get it right, and finally I, he said, "Okay, how do I say it?" And I said, "Hit," and I told him which word to hit, and then he got it right finally. But um, Barbara Streisand, for example, announced that she didn't like line readings, but then she would repeatedly say, okay, how do I say it? <laughs> um, I think the actors who objected to it had a kind of insecurity that they felt um, that it would, wouldn't look good if they, I was giving the line readings. But other actors, like Owen Wilson, for example, didn't mind. He'd say, how do you say How, how would you say it? So, you know, it depends. I don't do it all the time. If, if, I, if, I, if I can... Get the, get get the direction across without doing that. I, I don't I don't do it, but a lot of times it's just easier to say try it this way because by saying it a certain way, the the reader I mean the um, actor gets the sort of subtle 
difference, you know. Sometimes it's just, a, it's just an, an, an intonation that's different. I remember I said to Barbara, "We try this." Uh, when when she, I said, "When you sing that song, uh, as time goes by, when you get to that phrase, um, um, on that you can rely." Would you hit can? She said, "Now you tell me how to sing the fucking song." <laughs> I said, "Try it," and she sang it. She tried it, and it worked. Anyway, um, you know, Lubitsch, who's one of my favorite directors, had a thick, thick German accent, and he was short, not particularly attractive uh, guy, and he would act out every single role in every movie. And I asked Jack Benny, who did a picture with him, I said, is that true that, that um, Lubitsch acted out all the parts? He said, yeah, all the parts, even the maids. And <laughs> I said, how was he? Jack said, well, he was... Kind of broad, but you got the idea. <laughs> <laughs> is that flexibility of being able to read the actors and, and know what type of direction they need, what separates you know, good directors from really great directors? I think the acting is key. And if you can't get the right performances, you're not, you, know, you shouldn't be doing the job. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's all about the acting, you know. Um, if you know where to put the camera, of course, it helps. <laughs> you uh, wrote a wonderful book and did a great documentary as well on a Maine native John Ford, certainly one of the great directors of all time. Uh, you got to know him very well. Where, where does he belong in the history of American cinema? He's a very important figure. He's one of the few poets, you know. Uh, he really he really made some extraordinary films. Um of course, he was great at westerns, and made a number of classic westerns, Stagecoach and um, The Searchers by Donnie Clementine, mm -hmm. Fort Apache. The whole Cavalry trilogy is brilliant. And he was a great director, there's no question. Um, Orson used to say he was the best American director, um, the only one who's a poet, he said. Well, he was right. I love Hawks as well. I said to Orson, and so did, so did Orson, I said, how would you differentiate Hawks and Ford? And Orson said, well, Hawks is great prose, but Ford is poetry. Ah, that's perfect. Yeah. I, I saw just this week a story that the top ten grossing movies of this year so far are all either comic book movies, sequels, remakes or action movies are you worried about the future of cinema yeah <laughs> pretty bad um you know the, the trouble is that the studio system worked for a very simple reason which was that you had everybody in the company working to make the actors to have the actors be at their best and they all the actors had personalities. They they, they were they were interesting, you know. Uh, they weren't like acting in the theater where you know it's all about the acting. But in movies, it was all about the acting. But it shouldn't look like acting. Uh, the, 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 what everybody was trying to get in the in the, in the golden age of Hollywood was uh, performances where people existed. It was like to be as, as it was like being as opposed to acting. So that's why John Wayne, Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, 
those were real stars. And they always played something that was in their range that worked, that was believable, that wasn't like, uh, you know, you couldn't, as Hitchcock said, you couldn't cast Cary Grant as a killer. The audience wouldn't accept it. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was... The great movie acting is where the character and the actor, where the line between the character and the actor is erased. We don't we don't have that anymore, and and we don't we don't have any, anything to to create that. And then Brando became came along and wanted to be versatile and not be typed. And and fine, he was great. Uh, but the thing was, Marlon had such a key, clear personality of his own that no matter what he did in terms of makeup and the accent and all that it still had Marlon there and so that was his that was his that was what he had he just was unique no matter what he was playing anyway but uh, but the the need to be versatile is uh, what we have now with actors and so you, you, we don't have any stars left of the old school Clint Eastwood I guess is the last one uh, 20 years ago, a groundbreaking television show began. How did you get involved uh, in your role in The Sopranos? Well, um, I was... I can't remember how I did this. Uh, oh, yeah. I um, i was called by uh, David Chase about... I don't remember what it was, early, in the early 19... Uh, 19... Um, 19... Um, and he said, I'm, he's doing a, a series called Northern Exposure. And they were planning, it was just, I remember what year it was, it was 97. It was just after my book on, 92, I guess, right after my book on Orson came out. And uh, by, by maybe a few months after. And he said, we're doing a special um, show on Northern Exposure. Kind of a tribute to Orson, uh, where we're going to do a film, uh, supposedly a film festival up here. They were, they were shooting in Seattle, but it was supposed to be Alaska. And he said, he wondered if I would come up there and um, play myself, so to speak, in a in a kind of having just written this book, in a kind of tribute to Orson, who was dead. So I said sure, and I came up and we did it. And um, on the second day of shooting, he, he comes over to me and he says, uh, "Have you acted before?" <laughs> I said, yes. I said, yes, I started out as an actor when I was 15. He said, well, you're very good. He said, you have a lot of presence. You should do it more often. I said, well, thank you. <laughs> Seven years later, David Chase calls me again. He says, we're doing a series called The Sopranos. It's going into the second season. And we have a therapist who's been uh, working with Tony Soprano, and he, she, she's such a, she's so difficult. Now she needs to go to a psychiatrist. Would you like to play that? I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> so uh, he said, come on down and meet the writers. So I went and met the writers, and they called me about an hour later and said, you got the part. We'd love you to do it. And so I did 15 of those and directed one of them. Mm. It was a great experience. I really uh, loved that. It was tremendous fun. All the actors were great. Uh, David was brilliant. Uh, just a great, great experience. What's been the, the biggest learning experience of your career as a director? Hmm. 
they're all a learning experience. Um, I don't know really which one I would single out. Um, I think at Long Last Love was the most difficult. And we couldn't. I never did get the cut right until somebody did it for me. And it, <laughs> and it was really. But the problem with that long last love was, that if you're going to make an original musical comedy, you got to preview it a lot of times. I mean, if you're doing it for Broadway, you got to, you go out of town for a month or two. Sure. To play it on the road, we had exactly two two previews. And that was the mistake. And the the ver- version that we opened was was not even previewed, so it was it was just fucked up, pretty good. Uh, I learned what not to do on that one. Uh, the scenes were good; it just wasn't wasn't cut right. Um, I guess that was the most painful learning experience. If you had to, we, I'm sure it would be impossible to do. But if you had to, if we pressed you and you had to pick one film. To represent your career, what might it be? That's difficult because I've done so many different kinds mm. of films. I don't know what I would pick. I think uh, probably they all laughed. If your films happen to come on television, do you watch it? And if you watch, are you able to enjoy or do you watch with a director's eye and look at things you might do differently today? I don't really watch my stuff on TV if I unless it's just like the other day the Keaton picture was on. <clears throat> it caught me by surprise. I didn't know they were going to run it, so I just I watched it since it was there. I thought, well, what the hell? Let's, let's, let's look at it, and I thought it was pretty good. Peter, thank you so much for making time for us. So we've enjoyed your work for so many years, and we appreciate you being with us. We we wish you continued success and good health. Thank you so much, Rich. Good luck with your show, and uh, thanks for thanks for the interest. That's Peter Bogdanovich with us here on Downtown, the podcast. We'll take a quick break for a word from Cross Insurance and come back with writer Josh Karp up next. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Jay can't afford the Ernest Hemingway of the cinema. I just want to know what he represents. The man is infested with disciples. I'm the apostle. Just like me and God. How could you tell us apart? Patrick's new movie? The Other Side of the Wind. What's that about the movie? We don't talk about the movie. So you old guys are trying to get with it. Is that what this movie's about? (laughs) A little bit of the trailer there from Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind, uh, an epic film and an epic journey from start to finish before it was released on Netflix. Josh Karp chronicled all of that in his book, Orson Welles' last movie, The Making of the Other Side of the Wind. I wanted to talk with you uh, a lot more this time around about Orson Welles. We touched on him uh, the first time you were on with us, and uh, uh, he's one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. But I wonder, do you think there's a danger? Uh, For years, Citizen Kane was always... And whatever list came out, it was always at the top of the list as the greatest film of all time. And recent years, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's the Godfather, and there are other possibilities. Is there a danger of people 
maybe forgetting Kane or at least forgetting the incredible innovations that were a part of that film. Oh, a- absolutely. Um, you know, I, uh, when I was working on the book, I was teaching journalism at Northwestern, and uh, I was, you know, doing some research one day and before class, and one of my students came in, and they said, you know, what are you, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm, you know, doing some research on this book, and what's it about? And I said, oh, it's about Orson Welles. And we ran through, I was like, Citizen Kane? You know, no. Every, everything, you know, you would identify um, Orson Welles by until we got to the P commercial, <sighs> where he goes totally crazy, um, you know, during the radio and, and you know, um, yells at the guy who's, <laughs> who's telling him what to do. So, you know, really, I mean, if you're under, I would say maybe 40, you know, it's, he's really like he's the P guy or he's the drunk guy on the uh, Palmasan commercials. But, so, I mean, there is a danger. I mean, that a movie like that and a talent like his gets forgotten over the course of time. I worry, too, and I hear this a lot from, from young people, well, mostly my students, if I show something in black and white in class, I get that immediate eye roll from some kids, ah, oh, it's black and white, well, I want to watch this. And I, I try to explain to them, but it often falls on deaf ears. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... You know, it's funny. I mean, I love, you know, I love black and white films, and I have four kids, and I've kind of tried to get them to watch them. And, you know, sometimes it really works, but it's got to be like the Marx Brothers or It's a Wonderful Life or something like that. But otherwise, they just completely tune out. Um, and I think that, that and it's, it's such a, a terrible problem because there's so many great, great films um, made before color that are better, you know, than so many color films. Um, I saw Casablanca in an actual movie theater about a year ago. And it's just unbelievable when you see a movie like that shown the way it was meant to be shown. If we assume that Citizen Kane is Wells' greatest film, what to you would be number two on that list? Well, you know, my my favorite film of his, other than that, is, is The Lady from Shanghai. Mm. Um, I just, it's such a weird movie. Somebody said it was a the weirdest great movie or the greatest weird movie ever made. Um, and it's just, it's just such a fun movie to watch. Um, you know, and I enjoy his performance in it. And it's so unbelievably interesting. I mean, everybody talks about it, but the, the mirror scene um, at the end is, is an amazing scene and kind of watching that over and over when I was working on the book and trying to discern how well was able to do it was, you know, that was really fun. I mean, he was such a, he was a guy who just absolutely, always had to kind of up his degree of difficulty on everything he did. Um, and, and, and that, that to me, you know, it was really interesting. It was like making a movie wasn't enough of a challenge for him. He had to do something nobody else had ever done every time, you know, he came to bat. One of my favorites, and it's amazing to me how many people have never seen it. I, I have probably seen it a dozen times. I absolutely love F for Fake. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's a great, and that's a very, you know, innovative, um, innovative film. And it was, you know, it was a film he actually, I don't know if you know, but he took it over kind of midway through from another director um, and turned it into something completely different than what it had been, uh, what it had been intended to be. But it was great because it was, you know, this movie all about, you know, a forger and what's real and what's not. And it was very much in keeping with, Wells persona and where he was going, um, you know, with, with his films at the time. 
uh, of the uh, acting gigs that he took where he wasn't the director. Uh, what are a couple that stand out for you along the way? And there were, there were so many great ones. You know, the, probably the one that everybody says, but I'll say it is the third man. Um, he's just amazing in that. Um, and uh, he's, you know, everything, one thing about him is he was just somebody who was such a, uh, a presence, even before he became the gigantic Orson Welles, even when he was a young man. He's just somebody who, when he walks on screen in any film, it becomes, um, you know, you can't take your eyes off of him. He's just this kind of, you know, he's not, the, you know, the world's, you know, best looking guy, not the world's most charismatic guy or whatever, but he has huge, you know, energy. So in the third man, you know, he just really, it's, it's one of the roles he actually kind of underplays a little bit. Um, instead of being like Orson Welles, you know, he's, he's just kind of, just kind of an act, you know, he's being an actor in it. So, so that's the one, that's the one I like most. And, and I don't think it's great acting necessarily, but another film where I, I can't take my eyes off him when he's on screen is Catch-22. Oh, sure. And, you know, he uh, apparently when he was making that film, Mike Nichols was just absolutely terrified <laughs> to have him on the set. I mean, he like, you know, that when they when they cast him, he was like, are you kidding me? Did I have to direct Orson Welles? <laughs> and I think there were, you know, there were a couple of good stories about him you know, not wanting to come out of his trailer to direct Orson when Orson arrived <laughs> on the set because, you know, not only was he you know, this, this larger-than-life filmmaker, he was such a presence, and he was the kind of person who, you know, depending on his mood, tell you exactly how everything ought to be done. We're talking with Josh Karp here on Downtown, uh, the author of Orson Welles' last movie, uh, the great documentary, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, chronicling the making, the journey, the epic journey of completing uh, The Other Side of the Wind. The character of Jake Hannaford is a very interesting. As you explain in the book, uh, it's hard to pin down who he is, certainly an amalgam of a lot of people that Wells encountered along the way and maybe a glance in the mirror as well. Yeah, I mean, he, he's he's John Ford, he's John Houston, he's, you know, all the kind of manly um, directors when directors were figures. You know, you don't think of, you know, you don't hear anything about Steven Soderbergh's fascinating life, you know, <laughs> away, from, uh, away from making films, but with with those guys, I mean, you know, their their persona off screen was as big as the kind of the films they made, you know, and they were these hard drinking, hell raising, uh, you know, geniuses. And so, you know, I always thought that Wells kind of used that persona and actually casting Houston in the role um, did it perfectly as kind of a way of telling his own story without it looking autobiographical. Um, you know, at one point he and Houston sat down, and just the idea of the two of them being together was actually, when I was thinking about writing a book, I was like, oh, God, when am I ever going to get to write about <laughs> two guys like that? You know, I mean, really, I mean, you know, you're talking, people aren't like that. They don't make people like that anymore. Um, you know, it's a whole kind of just everything about them is so outside. And, uh, but they were sitting there, and, you know, Houston said, you know, wow, what's this, what the hell is this film about anyway? <laughs> And and Orson said something like, you know, it's about a bastard director who destroys everybody's lives. And then he paused, you know, did a big Orson pause, and he said, it's about us, John. <laughs> um, you know, so that, so I think, you know, he always denied that it was his, uh, you know, that it was autobiographical, but I think he had a great um, way of pretending it wasn't because he cast John Houston, whose persona was so opposite of Orson. You know, Orson was not 
you know, uh, even though he was a big cigar smoking, you know, hard drinking guy, he wasn't, you know, somebody who was, you know, seems like his whole life was trying to kill himself. Like, you know, like Houston's was, um, but yet always living despite the odds. He was a little bit less, uh, less adventuresome as a, as a human being off screen. One of the most famous characters in the story of the making of the other side of the wind is Gary Graver, who essentially talked himself into a job that really became a lifetime job. Yeah, you know that um, that to me before I started the book was one of the most one of the most fascinating things. I mean, you know, at, at the time Wells started making the film in 1970, um, you know, there was this huge kind of like Roger Corman's movies, these you know horror movies and these biker movies and these exploitation movies. That was like a film school. If people would go to work for Corman and they would learn how to make a movie. And Corman would pay them nothing, but he'd let them have total control mm. over making the picture. And that's where a lot of people got their training, including Peter Bogdanovich. I think Ron Howard made films for him. Um, and Gary was a cinematographer in that world. And he really just worshipped Orson Welles. And so the, the story, and this was kind of just too good to even have in a book was that he was uh, he was with his wife at um, Schwab's drugstore one afternoon. He picked up Variety and he looked and there was an Army Archer little you know one of those dot 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 columns about who's seen here and there. That Orson Welles in town planning to make his film The Other Side of the Wind, and he goes, "Where would Orson Welles be staying if he was here?" <laughs> and he calls the Beverly, he calls a couple places and they call the Beverly Hills hotel. And he says, Orson Welles, please. And the call goes through. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, he doesn't just have Orson Welles on the other end of the line. He has like Orson Welles, you know, he's got the voice and everything. And he says, you know, you know, who is this? And he says, my name is Gary Graver. I'm a cameraman. I'd love to work with you. And Orson kind of blows him off and says, you know, God, give me your phone number. Maybe I'll call you sometime. Click. And so Gary's like, Oh, I've blown my big shot. And he and his wife go home, and they're pulling into their driveway in Laurel Canyon, and he hears the phone ringing inside, and he just instinctively knows, and he runs to the, runs in the house, and he says, he picks it up, and he goes, Gary, it's Orson. He says, you've got to get down to the Beverly Hills Hotel right away. And he gets in his car, and he speeds away, and that really is the rest of his life. He spends working for Orson, trying to get the other side of the wind made, and, um, you know, doing, you know, shooting porn films on the side to make a living. But he, he I, I can't think of another relationship like theirs because he really, he gave his life to Orson Welles and he gave his life to the other side of the wind. And then even got Welles to help out with the, one of his pornographic films. Yeah, that was, um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was really funny. I found myself having possibly the weirdest conversation of my entire career with uh, Joe McBride, who's a great writer who was very helpful to me, and he he had written several books about Wells. And he had, there was a porn movie called 3 A.M., starring a woman named Georgina Spelvin, and, um, who I, I guess was a big porn star in the mid-'70s. And the story was that Gary, um, you know, always said yes to Orson, and always, you know, if Orson needed him, he'd run. And he lost a couple of marriages because of that, and he was always, you know, working 24 hours a day for Orson and then trying to earn a living on the side. And so finally, this one time, he stood his ground, and he said, Orson, I cannot come back to work until I finish editing this film 3 a.m. And Orson says, okay, what can I do to help you? <laughs> and so he 
goes over to Gary's house, and they're, I think it was at his house, and they're editing the film, and he says, you know, they're trying to, he's trying to cut together different scenes, and he goes, well, I'll cut together that scene. And it is a, uh, and it's a, it's a, a scene in a shower um, involving, uh, involving two women. And I wind, and, and Joe McBride had reported it as being a certain one kind of pornographic act. And I realized that it was a lesbian, you know, uh, scene. And he and I are on the phone discussing whether this is a lesbian scene or a solo scene. It was like the mo- and I'm like, this is really the weirdest thing I'm ever going to do in my life. Um, but yeah, so Orson Welles, if you watch 3 a.m., there is a scene that Welles edited, and he did it in a like, like real Welles fashion, which I always love. It kind of has all these like Wellsian flourishes in the editing and strange angles and, and all that. And I always, you know think it's so great that when asked to do something just to get it done, he ha- he couldn't do it anyway, but in the Orson Welles manner. I love it. Uh, we're going to be talking with Peter Bogdanovich next week, and of course he and, he and Welles had a complicated relationship, and that kind of made its way to the screen on the other side of the wind with Bogdanovich playing one character and then Rich Little, at least for a while, sort of playing Bogdanovich. Yeah, I mean, that that to me, whenever I have to sum up the story of that film, in, you know, a paragraph, I always say, you know, Wells started shooting it in 1970. And at the time, Bogdanovich was a young director, but he was basically um, a journalist. And he was writing a book about Wells. And he, in the film, in 1970, plays a guy who's writing a book about the main character and a journal, you know, a film journalist. And the character is a lot like Peter. Peter did love to do celebrity impressions. The guy did impressions, you know, and all of this stuff. And so then Bogdanovich goes off and makes like three hit films in a row. He makes uh, The Last Picture Show. He makes, uh, uh, what's it called, Paper Moon. And he makes um, What's Up, Doc? And there is a character that Wells adds at one point that is a protege of the main character who, um, who likes to do impressions and who has made three hit films in a row and is the hottest young director in Hollywood, which is exactly (laughs) what Peter was at the time. And inexplicably, I mean, I guess because the character likes to do impressions, he hires Rich Little, (laughs) which I just always love that idea. And Rich Little, I think, was completely baffled by the entire experience of making a film. Though I will say, interviewing him, I got to hear, I didn't tape the interview, but he did conversations between Wells and Houston in their voices. Oh, God. Wow. And it was like, I regret not having taped that. It was was fantastic. But what happened was he, for various reasons, wound up leaving the film after three months without his his part shot. And so Wells calls up Bogdanovich. He says, oh, I'm in terrible trouble. What am I going to do? You know, Rich Little left. We haven't finished his scene. And now I got to start the movie all over again. What am I going to do? And Peter says, "Why don't I play the part?" And Orson goes, "Oh my God, would you?" Because <laughs> I never even thought of that. And he says, "You know, Orson." He says, "You know, it's like young filmmaker has made three hit films in a row and likes to do impressions." He said, "You never thought of me for the role?" He says, well, thank God. Oh my God, you're going to come here. So Bogdanovich goes, um, you know, and Wells says, "We'll reshoot your other scenes with somebody else playing that part." And so basically, Bogdanovich goes from playing who he is in 1970 in the film in 1970 and in 1974 plays who he has become. 
And uh, and that to me just always that is the the essence of what that film was about. Just the way Wells blended life and art, and then uh, you know it was kind of art imitating life, and then at some point it became life imitating art. Um, and he and Bogdanovich had a falling out that actually happened in the film a year before uh, he and Bogdanovich had the actual falling out, which to me was just the most surreal thing. That's writer Josh Karp talking a little Orson Welles with us. Thanks to Josh for being on the podcast this week and great to talk with the legendary Peter Bogdanovich as well. We remind you that Downtown the Podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time on Downtown.